This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 6, Hosea. Hosea's experiences and his announcements of judgment. You recall in the previous lecture, we talked about the structure of the book of Hosea in this manner. We said he first, in the first three chapters, had symbolic experiences of judgment and salvation, then made in chapters 4 through 9, 9, announcements of judgment, and then followed that with historical reflections of judgment and salvation with a final word of call to consideration. In this lecture, we're going to deal with the first experiences and his announcements of judgment. Remember. Remembering now that the purpose of this book is that Judah may learn from Hosea's ministry in the north how to avoid judgment and how to hope for restoration. And uh, this, of course, is what we're going to be looking for as we go through these various portions of the book. This brings us then to Roman number one, Hosea's symbolic experiences. Just so we're sure we're familiar with all this, let's look at letter A, the basic content of these chapters, the first three chapters. Figure 6.1 sort of summarizes what happens. Hosea marries Gomer at God's command, and Hosea and Gomer have children. Now, Gomer apparently commits adultery, and Hosea divorces her, and then Hosea marries, and, or loves, as the text says, again. Now, these, the idea of symbolic experiences is not unusual in the prophetic material. You can look at Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5, and you can see that very often the prophets would have experiences in their lives that had um, significance for their ministry. That is, they somehow illustrated or brought, to, brought home the message that they had received from Yahweh. This is certainly unusual in the sense that this, these experiences Hosea had of marriage, divorce, and remarriage are extensive, but the idea of a prophet experiencing something in his life and then relating that to his ministry is not all that unusual in the, book, in the books of the prophets. Roman number 1b, however, raised, there are some historical and moral issues that need to be talked about as you think about the question of Hosea's marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There are many people who believe that this material is historical. That is to say that it really did happen. For example, Gleason Archer and Doug Stewart and a number of others consider it to be historical. But oddly enough, as strange as it may sound, E.J. Young and many other evangelicals don't consider this to be historical. They consider it parabolic. That is, it's just a parable. Their main reason for that is because of the moral question. What business is this that has a prophet marrying an adulterous woman and then remarrying her after divorcing? Are these things not uh, questionable in the light of Mosaic law? Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to illustrate here in figure 6.2. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, where you have Hosea marrying Gomer at God's command. She is called a woman of adultery. It was her lifestyle an Ashet Zununim. And, um, but the question, of course, is in what sense was she a woman of adultery? Was she already adulterous? 
or was she a religious adulterer, or was, she, was this a proleptic description of her? In other words, was this something that um, the prophet would, knew was going to happen to her? Um, we can't be really sure, but I prefer the idea that Hosea married her knowing that she had been a woman of adultery, and perhaps she made initial commitments to him not to continue in that lifestyle. But chapter 2 uh, takes us up to heaven to the divine di divorce of God, Yahweh, divorcing Israel. And this is reflective of the idea that Hosea and his wife actually divorced because in chapter 3, verse 1, Hosea is told to marry or to love again. Now, the word owed in Hebrew, which is translated again, can be translated in a number of different ways. Perhaps chapter 1 chapter 3 verse 1 can be read as we find here the Lord's in the NIV the Lord said to me go show your love to your wife again it's possible um, that it can be that that Hosea married the same woman it's possible however that God is not saying do it again he's saying that is to the same woman but he's saying show your love or love a woman once more that is another woman go ahead and get married again there are people who consider um, the question of Gomer remarrying or Hosea remarrying Gomer as something that uh, he should not have done uh, according to Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. His circumstances don't exactly parallel this Deuteronomic um, ideal but I think here we find that God actually does order him to marry that's certain and God orders him to marry in my opinion uh, Gomer not just another woman. I think the reason for believing the primary reason for believing that it is Gomer that he remarries rather than marrying another woman is the symbolism of his re Israel back into the, his arms again and that he will be married to her once again even though he divorces her through the exile. So from my point of view you have a sinful woman, Gomer, whom Hosea marries, he divorces her and then at the decree of God he marries her again even though she had been unfaithful to him. And this, I think, is basically what goes on, though there are opinions to the contrary, and you should be aware of that. This brings us to Roman numeral 1, letter C, the literary structure. Figure 6.3 gives us a big idea of what's going on in this material. In chapters 1, 2 through 2, 1, you have Hose the story of Hosea's first marriage. It is biographical. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, you have the story of Hosea's second marriage. It is autobiographical, that is, in the first person. In between this, you have a change of scene. Chapter 2, verse 2, is the beginning of the divorce proceedings. But what we might ex have expected would be for the divorce proceedings of Hosea to be recorded, but they're not. Instead, what we find in chapter 2 is the divorce proceedings of Yahweh. That is Yahweh divorcing northern Israel. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 2, 14 through 23, Yahweh talking about reconciliation with Israel. What we have here is an upper story, lower story event. The first and last sections of these chapters talk about the lower story. That is things that are going on earth. Hosea marrying, Hosea remarrying. Those are earthly events. But those earthly events have a parallel that's unspoken in these chapters in heaven. That is, Hosea's marriage, his first marriage, is Yahweh entering into covenant with his people Israel. 
And then the second marriage is Yahweh restoring Israel. So in the first and last sections, you have the lower story of the parallel universe, heaven and earth. But now, in the middle section, chapter 2, we have the upper story being talked about, not the lower story explicitly. The upper story of what God did up in heaven, divorcing Israel and then promising reconciliation to Israel. But what we're supposed to understand in this is that as this took place in heaven, there was an earthly parallel in Hosea's life. And that is Hosea divorced his wife and then began to seek reconciliation with her. And so you have the upper story and lower story being spoken of in secret, but we have to remember that the purpose of this is to give a parallel universe, heaven paralleling the earthly universe, the correspondence theory it's often called, that what was going on down here on earth in Hosea's life was always symbolic of things going on up in heaven and that what took place up in heaven was symbolized also in Hosea's life even though the text doesn't explicitly say that this took place. I know that's a bit complicated as you look at this but that's basically the idea as you think about these issues here in the first three chapters of Hosea. What we need to do then is to turn to figure 6.4 and take a look at what took place in these materials in some detail. Figure 6.4 addresses the symbolism of Hosea's first marriage. On the left-hand side we have the events and on the right-hand side we have the symbolism or the symbolic significance of these events. Hosea's first marriage. First he receives the divine commission and Hosea obeys and marries. And of course the Ashet Zinunim, the woman of adultery, represents Israel's adultery. That God married, as it were, an adulterous woman, an unfaithful woman, just as Hosea had done. Then we find that Hosea and Gomer have children. The first child's name is Jezreel. The child is born in chapter 1, verse 3, and then the child is named in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel. Now listen to the reason why because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. To understand this, you have to look at 2 Kings chapter 9, where the Jehu dynasty, Jehu in fact, massacred members of the Omri dynasty because of their apostasy. And what's being said here is that Jezreel, the event of that massacre, is going to come back and visit now Jehu's dynasty because Jehu had himself and his, and his descendants had themselves become just as corrupt as the Amrid dynasty before them. And this is the beginning of the series of and assassinations that we talked about earlier. It begins right here. This is the prophecy of the decline of the Jehu dynasty. And so the first child that's born to Hosea and Gomer is a child whose name reflects the judgment that's going to come on northern Israel. The second child is called Lo-Ruhamah. Now this, this name means not loved. And we have the birth and the naming of this child. And the child is called not loved because it symbolizes that God will soon stop loving Israel soon stop loving Israel. You can see that in verse 7 or 6. Call her Lo-Ruhamah, 
for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. In other words, exile is sure to come for northern Israel. But now, interestingly enough, look at verse 7, and notice the word to the Judahite reader. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them. And so God stops loving Israel, but shows love to Judah. That's the significance of the second child. The third child, lo ami, not my people. The words, the expression, my people, are covenantal words. When people would join into covenant with Yahweh, they became his people, they, he became their God. But now he's saying that those who were called ami, my people, will no longer be my people. This is a horrible set of symbolisms here because northern Israelites, being the covenanted people, did not expect their God to reject them in this way. But now he says, because of their sinfulness, that he will do just that. And this is the significance of Hosea's first marriage and the birth of his three children. Characteristically, Hosea's book does not allow words of judgment to go on very long without some word of hope. And we find an oracle of salvation. Take a look at the previous lectures that talked about the oracle of salvation. An oracle of salvation is put onto the end of this biographical account of Hosea's first marriage and his children. This word of, of salvation is, as it were, um, a reminder that all is not lost for Israel, even though uh, God is going to punish her severely. He says in verses 10 through 2-1 that Israel will be multiplied like the sand, that the people of God will be reunited, that they will come under one leader, and that they will return from the land of which they had been exiled back to the land of Israel. And he also says, interestingly enough, that there are going to be certain reversals that take place. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says that the day of Jezreel will come again that there will be a great day of Jezreel. And this is probably saying that there's going to be a punishment even on those who then were used as punishments for Israel. In other words, their own captors will be punished by God. They, he says, you recall that they were called not my people, but then he says in chapter 1, verse 10, that they will be called sons of the living God. And 2, 1, my people. And even though they were called not loved earlier on in chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, now in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. And so we find then that there is hope, despite how horrible the judgment will be, there is hope that God will restore Israel once again in the future. This brings figure 6.6. .6. As we go from the lower story, that is the earthly events of Hosea's first marriage that paralleled heavenly events, now we're going to shift up to the heavenly events that have earthly parallels. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 13, is a lawsuit. It's a reeve oracle, and you can recall the earlier lecture where we talked about what a reeve or a lawsuit oracle is. In this section, we find that Yahweh plays the role of the husband, of the plaintiff, and the judge. He's the prosecutor and the enforcer, and Israel is the bride and the defendant. There are many initial charges that are given in the first two verses, two, three verses, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And then you have a series of accusations and sentences. The accusations are infidelity, verse 5, ingratitude, verse 6. The sentences 
often introduced by this word lakain or therefore, the sentences are going to be a siege, verses 6 and 7, destruction and exposure. And so, in effect, what's happening here is that Yahweh is divorcing his wife Israel through this lawsuit. But, again, characteristic of Hosea, this negative word is quickly followed by words of divine reconciliation. Figure 6-6. Six, six. After the divorce, or after the exile, God will give restoration to Israel. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, he says, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Does he, do you see how he's using the um, metaphor of the relationship between a husband and wife and estranged husband and wife? He'll allure her. He'll speak tenderly. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Akkor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. And so God promises that he will one day speak tender words and that there will be great joy for Israel. In verses 16 through 20, there's going to be a purification that takes place and a covenant renewal. Even a betrothal, a betrothal will take place in verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And so we see here a sort of remarriage or reconciliation theme coming through. And what will be the result of this, verses 21 through 23? Cosmic harmony, return to the land, and again, the reversal of the names that we saw for Hosea's children. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 23. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. That's as if God were saying, I'm going to marry Israel again. I'm going to take the covenant commitments back. We're going to go for this relationship one more time. Remembering again that this heavenly event had earthly parallels a divorce, and in the process of reconciliation, even in Hosea's life itself, down on earth. This brings us then to the third major section of this first large block of material in the book of Hosea, Hosea's second marriage, figure 6.7. Certain events took place. There was the divine commission to Hosea to marry, and Hosea obeyed and, and gave instructions to his wife. Um, the symbolic significance of this, of course, is seen in a, or an oracle of salvation found in chapters 3, verses 4 through 5. Notice how it's said here. Let's begin, let's say, with verse 2. So I, brought, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days, you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. Now, this is the reason for this act. Verse 4, 4, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stone, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord to his blessings in the last days. So we see here in this section, there's going to be an exile, but there will be repentance as they seek God, seek David, and find the fear of God and the blessings of God. 
This last line of chapter 3, verse 5, raises an important issue that we need to pause and address. There, Hosea says, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. Look at figure 6.8. Many times when evangelicals hear the expression, the last days, they think immediately and solely of the second coming of Christ. This is unfortunate, especially in a passage like this, because it has led to the misperception that the prophets promised that the nation of Israel would return to her homeland just prior to the second coming of Christ. After all, this passage is talking about restoration to the land and that this restoration would take place in the last days. And if we think the last days are those days that are near the second coming of Christ, well then it's only natural that we would think that this is going to mean a return of the nation Israel to her land. And so you find many people today, wrongly in my opinion, associating the establishment of the nation of Israel with a sign that the second coming of Christ is nearby. I think this is a mistake because we are misreading the term last days in the book of Hosea and in other parts of the Bible. Figure 6.8 illustrates how this expression, the last days or the latter days, acharit hayamim, and, and, various, uh, and variations on those words, can be read. Literally, acharit hayamim means the latter part of the days. And frequently, as the left-hand column illustrates, frequently these, this expression is used to indicate, simply indicate the indefinite future. Someone can say, I'm going to do something, Akharit Hayamim, and that means I'm going to do it sometime in the future. But I think that Hosea using, is using in this passage a very technical expression for the prophets. He's using the, ex the expression that stems from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as you think about Deuteronomy and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, let's remember that the prophets were heavily dependent on their vocabulary, on their curses, their idea of curses and their idea of restoration and blessing. Uh, they were heavily dependent on the book of Deuteronomy. So it seems reasonable to think that they would find a technical terminology like this in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning, let's say, with... Um, verse 29, what you discover is that you have all these curses that are put on Israel because she has rebelled against. The warning is given that if you rebel, if you become idolaters, that you'll be sent off into a foreign land. And verse 29, but if from there you seek the Lord your God and you find him, and if you, if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in latter days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is merciful, and he will not abandon or destroy or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, the term latter days refers to the days when the restoration from an exile would take place. And in many respects, that is what Hosea is doing in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. When he says in the latter days, he's not referring immediately or directly to what we Christians think of as being the latter days. He's referring to that, that future time when the nation of Israel would be restored from the exile of the Assyrians that took place around 722. And we know that this did take place, that the restoration of the people of God began to take place 
around 538 BC when the Cyrus Edict was given and the people began to return from Babylon and reestablish their presence in the land. Now, the New Testament takes this expression, latter days, and it looks to the coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of the restoration promises. That is, all the promises that were associated with the restoration of Israel after the exile have been cast into the New Testament because the restoration community failed in its, in its um, program to restore and to bring in the kingdom of God. And for this reason, the expression last days is used in the New Testament not just to refer to the second coming of Christ, but it's used to refer to the beginning or inauguration of the kingdom in Christ, the continuation of the kingdom in our day, as well as the consummation of our day. If you take a look at the references here, you'll discover that the expression last days refers not just to the second coming of Christ, but to his first coming. And it also refers to the present day in which we live today. So the last days came when Israel returned from exile, but then because of the postponement of that restoration, the glory of that restoration, it was then picked up again in the first coming of Christ. It continues today in, in the church, the ministry of the church, and then will be consummated in the second coming of Christ. And let me say this to you, that Israel was restored in part in every single one of those stages. At the restoration in 538, at the restoration and the coming of Jesus, there was the initial belief to, among the Jews. Of course, the Word of God and the Gospel came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. We find in Pentecost, the remnant of faithful Israel came to believe in the Christ and they came um, to be, form a new Jewish community to which the Gentiles were added. And then in the return of Christ, uh, when Jesus returns, there will be a restoration of all faithful Israel in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will enjoy our place with them in this new heavens and new earth. Figure 6.9, the original meaning of these symbolic experiences. First, we see that Hosea's first marriage, the basic point is that Israel has been unfaithful, just as Gomer had been unfaithful. The divine divorce corresponding to Hosea's divorce showed that Israel will be exiled as, and Samaria destroyed, as did happen in 722. And then Hosea's second marriage demonstrated that Israel would return from the exile. So Hosea's message is that to his readers, the readers of the book is that Judah should learn the horrible results of infidelity for themselves by looking and seeing what happened in the north. But never forget that God's love for his people provides for restoration of Israel under a new David. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2, Hosea's announcements. As we move into this portion of the lecture, we are moving into the second major section of Hosea's book, that is chapters 4 through 9 a series of prophetic oracles lar which largely focus on the negative word of judgment. Looking at figure 6.10, we can see the basic content of chapters 4 through 9.9. Nine. There are threat of curses. There are a few passages that have threats and offers of blessing, and then a few offers of blessing. Many forms, uh, much mixing of forms, and a lot of flexibility in the book of Hosea as we look at each individual section. But basically, the overarching theme of all this material is negative. You'll notice, however, that in a number of places, the, the nation of Judah is actually mentioned specifically 
as the object of God's wrath and occasionally as God's grace, as figure 610 indicates. What is the literary structure of this material? Roman numeral 2b. It's difficult to say with much precision exactly how to divide up a long section of prophecies like these. It's important, however, for us to try to do that. Let's see if I can explain this at this point because we need to pause for a moment and try to understand that unless we get some kind of structuring device, then these words of prophets seem to just follow one after another after another at random, and that there doesn't seem to be any sort of order to them. But if we can catch some structuring devices in long materials like these, then perhaps we can find out what the order of the thought is, or what the logic, as it were, of the passage might be. Figure 611 illustrates the literary structure of chapters 4 through 9. And what I'm suggesting is, starting at the right-hand side of the figure, that you have a variety of prophetic oracles in these chapters, 4 through 9, but at the beginning of each section, there is a prophetic injunction for one here, five one here, five eight sound, five nine one do not rejoice. So these injunctions seem to start off or head the main divisions of each section. And if you move one step further to the left, you get a picture of the type of oracle that we're dealing with. The first two are lawsuits, the third a call to warfare, and the last one a mourning call to mourning. And what I'm suggesting is, is that these four oracles group together in this basic kind of structure, that the first two illustrate Hosea building a case against Israel. And again, Judah is mentioned in these passages as well. The lawsuits fundamentally focus on accusing and proving the guilt of Israel. And then the last two oracles, the one of call to warfare and call to mourning, focus on the punishment for Israel. And so the logic of these four separate sections here through chapters 4 through 9 makes sense then. The first, the, the focus is on the building a case against Israel, and then finally there is a focus on the punishment for Israel. Now we have to ask the question here, letter C, Roman numeral 2C, of historical setting because in order to understand the meaning of a prophetic oracle, it helps to have some sense of when these oracles probably uh, were given originally. The first lawsuit, as we take a look at it, figure 612, has little mention of anything negative and socially, and instead focuses on prosperity and peace and wealth. And in all likelihood, this means that this lawsuit was given during the days of Jeroboam II's prosperity. You can take a look at the historical charts and see when this is the case. This would be prior to the downfall of the Jehu dynasty and the, the instabilities that followed after that. You do find um, also this short little Torah attached to the first lawsuit in, in verses 15 through 19. And once again, no, no political instability seems to be addressed there. The lawsuit of five, chapter 5, 1 through 7, is probably before 734. That's the... Um, that's the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, and we know this because Tiglath-Pileser III had at that point annexed for himself the cities that are mentioned here in this passage as still belonging to Israel, Mizpah, Tabor, and Shittim. So we know that these oracles are pretty early. The call to warfare seems to reflect the situation where there was political upheaval and warfare, 
And this may be the warfare of 734, the Syro-Ephraimite coalition and those troubles, or the, the, the Assyrian invasion that led to the final demise of Samaria in 722. And then finally, the call to mourning in chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Many scholars believe that the best place to set this is in the short period of quiet during the reign of Hosea, who was the last king of Israel to reign just before the downfall of Samaria in 722. Now, these historical settings are somewhat hypothetical, but they do help us get a handle on what's going on in these oracles themselves. Now let's ask the question, what was the original meaning of these various oracles? Looking at figure 613, breaking it into the lawsuit, the Torah, and the lawsuit of chapters 4 and 5, where, where Hosea is building a case against Israel. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, in and, and usual fashion, you have a summons to the court, 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites because the Lord has a charge to bring against you. That word charge in the NIV is the Hebrew word reeve, which indicates that it is a lawsuit. Then there are a number of accusations that run through 1b all the way down through 5a. There's bloodshed, lying, infidelity, and apostasy. And what will be the sentence? Well, the sentence is found in 4.5b. So I will destroy your mother. And the mother there is probably referring to Samaria. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And God goes on to say how destruction is going to come on Israel and things are going to be very bad and there's going to be terrible punishment. That's the sentence that northern Israel receives. After this, there's a short Torah, which is a prophetic teaching, where Judah needs to learn something. You'll notice verse 15 says, Though you commit adultery, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. And of course, this prophetic oracle here fits in very nicely with what we've been saying is the original intent of the writing of this book. And that is that the lessons of Hosea's ministry in the north are to be applied to Judah. Though Judah has committed adultery, don't let, pardon me, though Israel has committed adultery, don't let Judah do the same thing. And so we find here, just in a quick, quick um, statement, a reference to the readers of this book not just to the actual listeners of Hosea's words. Israel has sinned, there's reproof, and the sentence is that Israel will pay. But then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we find attention given to the priests and to the royalty, the nobility. Take a look at 5.1. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, O royal house. So this last um, lawsuit is oriented more toward the upper class or toward the power brokers of Israel. And what was it that they had done that was so wrong? Well, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, basically you find that they misdirected the localities that were underneath their, their authority. And as a result, verses 6 and 7, the cult, the worship of northern Israel, will be frustrated and brought down. Why did the writer, the compiler of the book of Hosea, put these things together. What was he teaching to the Judahites hearing this book for the first time, say, during the days of Hezekiah or shortly thereafter? Well, basically this, that the Judahites should learn what kinds of sins confined Israel to judgment and then apply this knowledge to their lives so that they could avoid these specific kinds of sins themselves. And that's the way this book then builds a case against Israel in this second major section of the book. 
We come now to the um, the call to war, the summons to war, and then in just a moment the summons to mourning. The summons to war is begun in chapter 5, verse 8 and 8-1 with the blast of the trumpet. Sound the trumpet, 5-8, in Gebeah, the horn in Ramah. And again in 8-1 we find this, the same kind of language coming through. Sound the trumpet, chapter 8, verse 1. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, that eagle being the Lord himself about to attack his people. So there's a summons to war, figure 614, where there's a, within this summons to war a call to repentance, an invitation to repent, a statement about Israel's hypocrisy, and then a sentencing against her. There are words of judgment that are going to come because of the kings and because of the alliances that they've made, and thus the sentence of war against Israel. And then finally, in chapter 7, 13 through 16, an oracle of woe that has an accusation, an introduction, an accusation, and finally, a sentence. That oracle of woe is interesting. If you take a look at 7.13, woe to them because they have strayed from me, destruction to them because they have rebelled from against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And this is, of course, what um, is acute, what the kind of thing that Hosea accuses Israel of again and again, and that is her hypocrisy, her lies, her rebellion against God, and yet the grace of God over this rebellion. At 8-1, you have this, the second announcement of blowing the trumpet, and the reason is because an eagle is over the house of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, God speaks in terms of an eagle coming, him sending a nation against Israel that will be like an eagle swooping down. Um, it's, it's difficult to say whether the eagle is really referring to the nation or whether the eagle is referring to God or if it can have both of those significances here because certainly any nation that's brought against Israel will be the instrument of God and thus God in effect himself um, bringing the judgment and bringing the punishment. Then there's a great deal of accusations in chapter 8 and sentencing that are mixed together where he'll talk about what they've done wrong and what they'll receive from this and of course what they're going to receive is the judgment and Hosea's message will be that the Judahites should learn how God brought war against his wayward people in 734, 733, and 722 with the destruction of Samaria. And Judah should avoid imitating the actions of Israel that brought such war against her. This brings us then to the final portion of this second section in the book of Hosea, the call to mourning, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. You'll see how this begins in chapter 9-1. Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of, pro of a prostitute at, ev at every threshing floor. So there's a call to mourning and the accusations made that Israel has been unfaithful. And the sentence is horrific. It is, again, judgment. It is, again, war. And it is destruction. You'll take a look at verse 6. Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them and, them, and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken by briars, and thorns will overrun their tents. The day of punishment, days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. And so there's no, in no uncertain terms, God calls for Israel to mourn because of the judgment coming. And then chapter 9, verses 7 through 10 you have a judgment oracle that sentences and accuses and sentences once again. What's Hosea's message? 
that the Judahites should learn the severity of Israel's exile and fear for themselves. This brings us then to Roman numeral three, the appropriation of this material. We find that figure 616 on the left-hand side is speaking with regard to the uh, symbolic actions that Hosea performed, the marriage and remarriage, divorce and remarriage. And the original meaning of this, of course, was that Judah can go through a divorce of God as Israel did, but will also be reconciled because of his great love. And the New Testament elaboration on this is that the church is the bride of Christ. Israel's the bride of Yahweh, the church is the bride of Christ, and the application that Christians should live as Christ's bride and can rest love for her much as Israel could rest in God's love for her. No matter how difficult the chastisements of God's hands may be, the church will never be utterly rejected by her God. The judgment against Israel, on the other hand, these oracles of judgment, Judah had to learn from Israel's severe punishment about her own life and about what was going to take place in Judah as well. And the New Testament, of course, tells us that sins of infidelity and syncretism and the like will lead to punishment. This is not an Old Testament concept exclusively. This is also a New Testament concept that even the people of God, when they rebel severely against God, can expect to receive his chastisement. And, of course, the application today is that wayward Christians must fear the judgment that can come on them. And so we've seen in this Lecture 6, the two first sections of the book of Hosea, his symbolic experiences, and then the series of prophetic announcements he made against Israel. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.